Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today to talk to my friend, uh, Mark Graber, who is the University System of Maryland Regents Professor at the University of Maryland School of Law. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College. He has a master's and PhD from Yale in various subjects. He has a JD from Columbia Law School. Um, he is he's a political scientist. He's an historian. He's a law professor. He is probably the leading expert in the country on the Dred Scott case. He has written too many books and articles to mention, but his most recent book, I believe, is Punish Treason, Reward Loyalty, um, The Forgotten Goals of Constitutional Reform After the Civil War, which could not be more timely for reasons we'll discuss. Mark, welcome to Supreme Myths. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So we're going to we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about originalism, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which both you and I have been talking about in the news and various other places and academic symposia and raises what I think are some obviously dangerous and interesting questions about constitutional law. But let's start with this. Um, you do a lot of history and you write a lot of history, but you do not self-identify as an originalist. Can you flesh that out for us? In one sense, I identify as an originalist, but in a historical sense, not a legal sense. When I do historical research, what I'm trying to figure out is how people of a certain time understood their problems, understood possible solutions, and what was the conceptual apparatus they could bring to those problems. Whereas legal originalists tend to think, what would these people do if they were faced with our problems, which they were not, if they had our array of solutions, which were not available to them, and most important, if they thought like we did. So to give an example that may be relevant today with the 14th Amendment, a great many people who framed the 14th Amendment believe that political parties were the primary vehicle of constitutional visions. Now we think it's the Supreme Court. But if you interpret the 14th Amendment as primarily designed for a court to interpret, you don't capture what they were doing because they were writing the 14th Amendment they thought would be implemented by the Republican Party. What's really interesting about that is Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick's most recent book on, on the 14th Amendment, which I liked a lot more than I thought I was going to, um, make, takes the position that it, the, the people who wrote and ratified the 14th Amendment thought Congress was going to be the main enforcer of the provisions of that. And, and Randy was obviously a, a libertarian. Um, he comes to the conclusion that Congress has a lot more power under Section 5 than the court has given it under Section 5. I found that fascinating. I think that's largely right with the proviso that it really is the Republican Party. So Republicans anticipated a dialogue between Republicans in the Supreme Court, Republicans in the presidency, after you got rid of Andrew Johnson, and Republicans in Congress. They had no theory in 1866 about what would happen if the Supreme Court and Congress clashed, particularly if there were Republicans in both, any effort to impose a theory on them is our thinking 
not theirs, because we think in terms of which institution is supreme and not political parties. And Mark, just for the non-lawyers listening, back in the Civil War times, the Republican Party were the liberals and the Democrats were the conservatives. By the, by the way we use those terms today, it was the Republicans who, who really were behind you know, all of the Reconstruction Amendments and all of that. Um, how, what, is, um, what is your grade on the Roberts Court on legal history? I would sort of say never took the course. <laughs> and That's a great answer. In, in some ways, they're not doing what I am doing. I, I wish they would stop pretending they're doing what I am doing. They're doing something Jack Balkin and Reba Siegel call memory. One of the things anyone does for political leadership is you need to construct a story that explains why you want to be the leader and why your policies are right. And they're constructing a story. Now, their use of history in many ways is a lot worse than other constructing stories because it's very contextual. That is to say, for example, in Bruin, Thomas asked, did they ban this weapon or that weapon? But that wasn't the question the framers asked. The framers believe nobody had a right to act against the public good. So the framers' question was not this weapon or that weapon, but at this time, do we feel this weapon is sufficiently dangerous that we need to regulate it? So by asking the wrong question, Thomas comes up with the wrong historical answer. They're not thinking in his terms. Right. And, and, and Mark, I want to um, tell the audience that Saul Cornell, who is the we, uh, history department at Fordham, who is definitely a political liberal, no question, and Judd Campbell, who's now at Stanford, have both been, he's not a liberal, have both been on this podcast, and they both said exactly what you said, that, that Thomas's use of history in Bruin is wrong on many, many, many levels, but the biggest defect probably is that the Founding Fathers didn't think of rights like Justice Thomas and the conservatives and the liberals are thinking about rights. In their view, the Founding Fathers, rights were defeasible by, by the public good in, in most circumstances. And that's the opposite of what Justice Thomas said we should do when looking at Second Amendment issues today. Is that fair? Yeah, no, this is a point I, I made earlier, yeah. which is that what people who call themselves originalists tend to do is impose modern conceptions on history. So Thomas is asking, what would George Washington do if he had our conception of rights? But the answer is Washington didn't have right. our conception of rights. It's alien to him. It's sort of like saying, what would Washington think about his lesbian daughter if he had contemporary conceptions of sexuality. All you can answer that question is, well, I have concept contemporary understanding of sexuality. Here's what I would think. It doesn't right. make sense to ask the question of Washington. Right. So, Mark, before we get to Section 3, um, what is your perspective on the appropriate role of history in constitutional interpretation? 
by, by courts, not by actors outside of courts, just by courts. What, 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 how should history be used, if at all? I think, you know, one, it's background. And sometimes history provides what we might call a blunt rule of law um, foundation. So it's a matter of history that they said the president gets elected every four years. It's rather clear. And this is an area where having a very clear rule is very useful, even if we might think today, you know, three years, five years better. But this way, the ins cannot tinker with the basic machinery of election. So that's one role history plays. Another is history is both a source, emphasis on a source of who we are and who we not are, who we are not. So looking to history can help us understand, well, here's how they solved their problems. We might then discover, you know what? Their worldview was just different. They had a very different understanding of rights. We cannot import their solution to our solution. Or we might say, you know, the role of political parties is more important than we thought. We cannot fully import their solution to our times, but it's something we want to think about. It's in some ways a bit like going to a foreign country. You see things and sometimes say, guess what? That may work for them. It doesn't work for us. But sometimes you say, you know, that pastry was really good. Let's see if I can do a version of it at home. Okay, one last question about this, which is self-serving on my part. You'll see why in a second. Um, so in a lot of my work, I rely a lot on Federalist Number 78 and Hamilton's response to Brutus. Brutus, among many other things, said that um, the Supreme Court would become too powerful it would be an organ of the federal government. It would uh, make the federal government way too strong and big. And judges shouldn't have this amazing amount of power anyway, especially with life tenure. Um, to which Hamilton responds in 78, don't worry about that because they're only going to strike down laws either when they're at an irreconcilable variance with the Constitution or against the manifest tenor of the Constitution. I think both of those phrases mean exactly the same thing. Hamilton was making an argument that judicial review would be kind of a clear error type of judicial review. I don't use Hamilton because, he's hist because it's history. The way I use Hamilton is here's a really smart person who was trying to get a political goal accomplished, get the Constitution ratified, but he was thinking about judicial review kind of in the veil of ignorance. He didn't know if his judges would be in the Supreme Court. He didn't know what the future was going to hold. It just made sense to him as a structural mechanism. That very strong deference would be the best way for the separation of powers to work between the Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court. Um, am I wrong in any of that? Is that a wrong way to use history? Is that a fair observation? It's, it's legitimate. I would add that Hamilton was under a veil of ignorance for a second reason that's also important. Namely, not only didn't he know whether his guys or other guys would do it, doing right. a fair guess, Washington was going to be the first president. Yeah. He didn't know how judicial review was going to work. Right. He no one did, right? They'd never been used before. Yeah. He didn't know 
how judicial review was going to work in a party system. He didn't know how judicial review was going to work in a political order where a great many elected officials had incentives to pass the buck, how it was going. So he's sort of writing on this notion where he actually strongly believes that the president and Senate in particular are going to be composed of really virtuous people, people like him. And they're unlikely to do anything really bad that his judiciary is mostly a vehicle for curbing runaway states right. and is just, you know, they, they really don't think George Washington would ever do anything seriously wrong. So the judiciary <laughs> isn't a major curb on a runaway Congress because they think there are other curbs. Right. And, and, and by the way, I think Oliver Wendell Holmes, century and a half later, said we could live without judicial review of the federal government. We just need judicial review of the states. And I think Thayer's deferential approach definitely applied to Congress, but he was, I think, ambiguous or imprecise as to whether his deference approach applied to the states as well, all consistent with what you just said, right? Yeah, I, I think particularly we might distinguish two kinds of uses of judicial review, and actually it becomes very relevant to the conceptualization of the post-Civil War amendments. Notice Hamilton actually says judicial review is really important in a constitution that has express limitations on government. Now, one express limitation is no title of nobility. Right. But the Roberts Court has said there's another kind of limitation, an ultra vires limitation is the legal expression. The idea is enumerated powers imply something not enumerated. So there are limits on congressional power on things that aren't stated as limits. It's simply where the power runs out. So it's entirely possible that Hamilton conceived of judicial review differently when you were dealing with express constitutional limitations, the contracts clause, the title of nobility clause, the ex post facto clause. But really, and this is where I suspect two of us have some disagreements on the limited provisions, but with respect to the enumerated, I think there Hamilton thought as long as it's plausible, courts ought not to be involved in limiting the federal government in the absence of a clause declaring that this is in fact a limitation. Right. And now, in fact, in fact I'm sorry, go ahead. Here's the important to, to pivot to the Reconstruction Amendment. It is my belief that Barnett is, in fact, backing up that the Reconstruction Amendments were better understood as adding to the powers of Congress than as limits on government action, right. which implies a different understanding of the relationship between courts and Congress. Right. 
especially as the Roberts Court has limited Congress's powers under Section um, 5 of the 14th, under Section um, 2 of the 15th, et cetera, et cetera, um, in a way that I think is ahistorical, which wouldn't bother me if they didn't pretend to be originalists. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. It's sort of like when somebody says, you really believe this. And you will say, no, if you believe that, sure, say it. But don't say I believe it as a way of right. defending your opinion. So, you know, you want to say we need less regulation of guns? Fine. But don't impute it to George Washington. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I think that's a great sense to end this part of the, that part of the podcast with. If you if you want to, don't pretend you know what George Washington would think. I agree with that. All right, that's excellent, Mark. Thank you. I guess one postscript to that: uh, Jamal Green had wrote an article a long time ago, I think in Columbia, but I'm not sure about what you just said that that the the clear parts of the Constitution. We we don't need methods of constitutional interpretation for that because we know what two means. In the Senate, we know what 35 means for the president. We know what January 20th means. Um, for the open-ended phrases, that's where we need methods, and that's where originalism can't help very much for all the reasons that you just basically said. Let's move to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So this is in all the news. Everybody's talking about it. There are going to be three, four, or five lawsuits at least in the next four to five weeks on this. Uh, you and I are both going, I think, to Minnesota at the end of October to discuss this because there's a Minnesota case. Let's begin at the beginning. What does Section 3 say, and what, why, why, did, why was it put into the Constitution? Okay, Section 3 says, if you are a past and present office holder and you engaged in rebellion or insurrection, you are disqualified from holding future or present office unless you're amnestied by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress. I've oversimplified slightly, and I understand we'll go into some of the ways I've oversimplified. Yeah. The interesting thing is the two-thirds of a vote of both houses of Congress, there the reason is they did not trust Andrew Johnson. They thought if the president could issue a pardon. Johnson would instantly pardon everybody. They wanted to keep congressional control over the process. So, I, I, I'm I, sorry. This is, okay. Yeah. Just to say the other, there were two reasons yeah. for the general laws. The first is the belief that the Civil War was brought on by the Confederate elite that, in fact, the average Southerner was really like the average guy in Illinois. Uh, they were just duped into the Civil War. If you politically neutered the political class of the South, Alabama would turn into Ohio. Now, Ohio was not a great bastion of racial equality, but Ohio was good enough by Republican standards. The second was a belief that persons who took an oath of office and betrayed that oath of office were not qualified to hold office again, particularly if the betrayal took the form of violence against the law. 
since the very point of office is the way we govern is through debate, persuasion, and voting, and not coercing government officials. Can we back up a second to that two-thirds? I, I, so, Mark, you and I have been talking about this. We did it together for, for Maryland PBS. We've been thinking about this. But a new question just popped into my head that I haven't thought of before. So that this we didn't talk about this prior to the podcast, but two-thirds vote of Congress can take away a disqualification of someone who had taken an oath of office, then engaged in insurrection, then wanted to hold office again. Mark, is that constitutional after Chada? Is it? If so, so I may back up a second for the non-lawyers in the room. The Supreme Court has held that, Cong- that, that, that for, for, for something that is legislative in character and effect, it has to pass both houses of Congress, be presented to the president. He can sign it or veto it. If he vetoes it, two-thirds of Congress can override. This part of, this part of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that says Congress can take away a disqualification does not require presentment to the president. It certainly sounds like it alters the legal rights of people outside the Congress, which is the definition of legislative in character and effect. Have we? Have you thought about this at all? That, well, I, here's what. Here's why I'm worried about it. If that part is unconstitutional, the court can strike the whole thing down, saying we're not going to sever the, the constitutional parts. Well, no, because that the two thirds is in the Constitution itself. So, in fact, we have one constitutional legislative veto per se. Namely, two-thirds of Congress can do this. It's a bit like during the debate over Section 3, some Democrats said, you can't do this. It's a bill of a tainter. It points to specific people and imposes punishment on them. And Republicans said two things. First, it's not a bill of a tainter. Second, they said, who cares? If we put it in the Constitution, it's now an exception to the Bill of the Tainter. So same with the legislative veto. Even if a legislative veto is unconstitutional in general, if we ratify a constitutional provision that says the legislature, Congress by a two-thirds vote, can overturn any regulation made on the environment by the EPA. That's constitutional. Right. Okay, you're right. So that's se- fair. Okay. For section yeah. three. I, okay, I think that's right. All right. So before we get into all the meat of section three, w- let's get rid of one argument quickly. Uh, two law professors, Josh Blackman and Seth Tillman, have made kind of the 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 the, the stabbing into the heart of section three argument that the president is not an officer is not an officer of the United States and since section 3 only applies to officers of the United States it can't apply to the president um, you've written pretty scathingly about that conclusion can you give us a quick summary of why it's wrong i make no comment and i have done no research about the founding what i can tell you was i did a little search and took a look at every use of officer of and officer under in the 39th Congress. And what I discovered first, they routinely used officer of the United States 
to refer to the president of the United States. The president of the United States repeatedly described himself as an officer of the United States. They repeatedly use officer under the United States to refer to the president. When Section 3 was being debated, Lot Morell, Senator Lot Morell from Maine said, the president and vice president are included because they are officers under the United States. There is a select committee report in the 39th Congress on another matter, but it says, we understand the terms officer of the United States, officer under the United States, and officer to be normally interchangeable unless the context clearly suggests a different usage. So it could be by Stephen Calabresi has, well, there's a technical rule that says we interpret this language as technical unless the framers explicitly say otherwise. All I can say is the framers didn't have that rule. Calabresi right. concedes <laughs> the people who wrote the 13th Amendment thought the president was an officer of and an officer under. That's yeah. good enough for the historian. Whether originalists have a modern rule of understanding that they say governs what people meant in 1866, that's originalism. What I'm doing is history. Okay. Um, I guess I want to say I'm not sure we need either originalism or history to come to the conclusion that you've written this, I think, that the the, the people alive and eat, everybody thinking about this at the time of the Civil War would have thought if the president engages in a rebellion against the United States, he would be disqualified from future office. This is not it's not a close call. Just 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 forget all the dictionary definitions. They thought it applied to the, the president. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it's very clear. If you look at the debate. Most of the time, they say any officer. Right. And it's clear in the debate that when they have a disagreement over a word, they do have a disagreement over voluntary, they fight it out. But people say officer of the United States, officer under the United States, that fellow over there. They say, and nobody says, actually, when you said officer of the United States, you meant officer under the United States. That never comes up. They, they all understand there are lots of different ways to describe, and they're all created equal. Okay, so the president is an officer. This provision applies to Trump. We can move on from that. Uh, this whole public debate about Section 3 really was triggered by, I mean, it would have been anyway with the lawsuits, but when Will Bode and Michael Paulson uh, wrote an 126-page article and it's coming out in the Pennsylvania Law Review, um, where they un, where they try to resolve every legal issue, every textual issue, every historical issue, and come to the conclusion they did that Section Three is what they called self-executing, and what they meant by that was if some random state clerk somewhere, a Secretary of State or whoever is in, responsible for certifying candidates, decide that someone engaged in an insurrection against the United States after they had taken an oath of office, then they are now disqualified and can't run for office. And that secretary of state or lower person on the hierarchy could simply disqualify that person. Um, Tillman and Blackman don't agree with that. 
Uh, I'm curious what your position is on the self-executing idea of all this. Well, by all I would mean by self-executing is it doesn't require a congressional statute. And on that... Or finding, or finding, right? Or finding. Yeah, you, you, in other words, you could, people could be disqualified even if Congress did not have a statute implementing Section 3. And my reason for thinking this is they repeatedly say that one of the reasons we phrase things as we are is suppose Democrats come in and repeal all of our laws, we still want them to be good. So it's clear the framers considered other modes of implementing Section 3, then legislation. So, for example, if Blackman is right, the 13th Amendment didn't free the slaves. It's not clear when the slaves got free because when the 13th Amendment was ratified, there was no implementing legislation. And there's right. no reason to think the 13th Amendment is self-executing and the 14th Amendment isn't. Now, the more difficult question is, okay, we know there are other procedures. What should those procedures be? And in some ways it's frustrating because you'd much rather have a congressional law stating that, but we don't have it. And who decides? What are the procedures and who decides? Yeah. And to some extent, this is one where I really actually hope somebody disqualifies Trump because simply then we get a lawsuit and a hearing and at least courts and other institutions start to step in and resolve the chaos that to some degree exists because Congress hasn't done anything. So I'm inclined to think with you that many ways of implementing are better than other ways. But right now we're in a chaotic zone because of the failure of various institutions to act. So it's not a constitutional question per se, but a more pragmatic one. And I'm not really good on pragmatic questions. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that's true, but we'll let that slide for the moment. Um, do we have any, I'm going to move past history in a second because I think you and I agree we should do what's best given today's needs. But um, is there some history that tells us how they thought this would be implemented? What they thought the procedures would be? There really isn't. We know. Gerard Maglioka has really documented this well. Yes, yes. That procedures took place outside of Congress, and Congress didn't howl. Now, when people did things in courts that Congress didn't like, witness taking jurisdiction in the ex-party McCardle case, right. Congress immediately reacted. So it appeared that they were perfectly happy to have procedures in Southern state courts disqualifying people. Now, 
here is what we don't know. And once again, why we're different. The basic rule was, if you were doing the sort of things that Republicans wanted you to do, they were okay with the process. <laughs> if you and I started disqualifying Confederate leaders, sure. We have no idea how they would react to Section 3 disqualification far removed from the Civil War. We know, because they said so, they intended it to apply to all insurrections. And they, they don't simply say so in writing this, they say so on the floor of Congress. But we have no clue what they would have done in our situation. And we can say what I, what I say, I just posted on SSRN some tentative thoughts and some are more tentative than others. But we know they thought it was not, we know they thought it was self-executing. Right. We don't know what they thought if there was a collision between Congress and the Supreme Court. We don't know the degree. Right. to which they thought it was self-executing. Now we got to work out with ourselves and Abraham Lincoln, even if he lived to Reconstruction, ain't going to help us. <laughs> right. So, Mark, this, this um, one an argument that I've been kind of bandying about is if somebody, if, if a state court or a federal court were to disqualify somebody like Trump or anybody else, and it takes, and Congress has the power with, with two thirds vote to take away that disqualification, which it does. Is there an argument that this is a non-justiciable political question, given that Congress can solve the problem itself? Congress doesn't need the. We don't need the courts to step in if Congress thinks something is wrong in this procedure or, or on the merits. They can do it themselves. Why do we think the, court, the Supreme Court has any role to play once somebody has actually been disqualified? Well, the first thing to note, and this is true with preemption and the Dormant Commerce Clause, is it doesn't raise a political question merely because Congress can reverse the results. Fair, fair. So, and here, you know, one might say, remember, Congress can reverse the results, but only by a two-thirds vote. Right. So... What this is designed to cover, I think, is take, for example, it's actually a relevant example, that in the 1850s, Democrats attempted to apply the law of insurrection and treason to people who assisted in the, preventing the rendition of fugitive slaves. Well, by 1866, everybody agrees those were the good guys. Right. So if anyone tried to disqualify Charles Sumner for inciting people to free fugitive slaves, Democrats could easily use their two-thirds majority, so Republicans could easily use their two-thirds majority and say, nope, Sumner's still a member of the House. Right. But it would be for cases where we now as a society, two-thirds have a consensus that this person's use of violence 
was for a just cause. Right. Is violence necessary? And let me ask you why I asked that question. Um, let's get kind of into the weeds here on Donald Trump himself. So to the extent that courts are going to have to decide, did he engage in insurrection? And it looks like courts may have to decide this. Um, there's going to be, I think, two different places where, where, the, where the plaintiffs are going to try to show it. Obviously, his speech on January 6th, we'll get back, I'll get to that in a second. But to the extent Trump was behind or even was a big part of the attempt to send fake electors to Congress. And let's assume, I'm going to make it the easiest hypothetical possible. We find out that Trump, in bad faith, knows this is illegal, knows it's anti-constitutional, knows Pence is not going to do it anyway, knows all of those things but wants to create as much chaos as possible. So if he creates this, this Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, a couple other states, um, a group of people who are going to try to submit false and fake electors. And let's assume a court were to find those facts, that they, are, they were, in fact, intentionally trying to, to steal the election through fake electors. Is that an insurrection? As I read the case law from the 19th century, the 19th century case law is very clear that among the elements of an insurrection is either force or intimidation by numbers. There has to be, in some sense, a physical compulsion. Now, it's very clear, as some of the cases say, other things are really bad and ought to be punished as really bad. It's just not, it's not this crime. Okay. It's some other crime. Now, what I haven't done is take a look at the 16th, 17th, and 18th century English sources. It is possible, though I doubt it, that you will see in the English sources an idea that there are certain forms of fraud that are constructive violence. Hmm. But what a lot of Americans said, I think rightfully so, is given treason, given these things are quite severe, one ought not to engage in extraordinarily creative efforts to expand them. Right. Given that what yeah, given that what Trump did is, if the facts are as we both think they are, is criminal. Yes. I'm happy enough if the criminal sanctions are applied. I don't need to expand Section 3. And so one of the arguments that people opposed to Section 3 are using is that Jack Smith, who, is, who charged Trump with a January 6th crime, did not charge him with insurrection. There's a federal statute that makes insurrection a crime as well, and Jack Smith didn't use it. Is, is that relevant to this at all? No, um, I actually had a, a very good talk by a prosecutor on the Trump indictments at the Maryland Law School yesterday. It didn't concern this, but what this woman pointed out, and you have more experiences than I do, is, you know, they said, why did Jack Smith charge something a little more fancier? Yeah. And he said, well, when a prosecutor is thinking about charging, you're thinking about a number of things. First, what's the sentence? Imagine you've got a crime you think you can easily prove, and the maximum the sentence is 10 years. 
Then you've got another crime that you think the person did, but the sentence is only 10 years and you think this one is going to be a lot more difficult. You charge the crime, you're most confident you can sell to a jury. That makes and sense. So Smith, his charges are what he thinks are the easiest sells to get to the sentence he feels is appropriate. At least that's the way I think prosecutors think. I've never been a prosecutor. Yeah, me neither. Um, yeah. But the, okay, that's the reason one shouldn't say that this was a finding Trump did do it, among other things. Remember, criminal law is reasonable doubt. Right. This is a civil preponderance of the evidence. There are lots of times you think you have preponderance of the evidence, but not reasonable doubt. Ask O.J. Simpson. Right. Right. And, and just for the non-lawyers, preponderance of the evidence means 50.001%. Means you're you're just a little bit more likely than not that this is that this is true, which is a much lower standard than the reasonable doubt standard. Okay, um, so I want to talk about his speech on January sixth um, because, um, so as I've said many times on this podcast, I have a very European view of free speech. So I am not one of the ninety nine percent of American law professors who think speech trumps all values at all times, pretty much all day every day. And certainly the Roberts Court has taken a view of free speech that is extremely aggressive. So with that preface, I am, I've read that speech over maybe 10 times. And Mike Dorf and I have kind of argued about it a, a little bit. I, I think that speech is probably protected speech. I, I don't, I understand there are, there, are, there are dog whistles in that speech, but I'm worried about the slippery slope of making that speech the basis of an insurrection charge, given he never said, go attack the Capitol. He never said, go commit violence. He never said, let's go take this by force. If he had done any of those things, I'm, I'm very happy to call that an insurrection. He did none of those things, at least on the surface. And I'm nervous about making that speech criminally actionable, especially by the president of the United States. Tell me why I'm wrong. Okay, there are... Two answers, none of which tell you why you're wrong. Okay. It is more context. The first is that as I read the 19th century cases, um, they lean towards thinking that speech probably there, but there are exceptions. So uh, there is no clear consensus even in the 19th century, and our notion of free speech is broader, given that to some degree, I think, the Section 3 leaves it open to us to a degree of what's participation. We shouldn't simply be stuck with their lousy notion of free speech. Right. A second thing, and this is context, and this is where Judge Samuel Nelson has a charge to a grand jury in 1861 that I think gets it right, even by, not by their standards, but by our standards. He says, speech alone, no, but speech in context. So if all Trump had done was give that speech I'm probably with you. I'd want to think about it more. But what needs to be considered was, was Trump doing things 
before January 6th? What was he doing after? In other words, Nelson said the speech can be used as evidence. So to take a very simple version of it, Trump actually is arrested because he's now on the grounds of the Capitol. And he says, oh, I was just visiting. Right. We could clearly use the speech. Right. There. So I think the speech is clearly relevant in determining whether other acts that Trump performed. So if the question is speech alone, you're probably right. I want to reread. If the question is speech with other acts, it may be now we have section three. But I always emphasize when I do these things, I'm the legal historian. I really try to immerse myself in the historical materials. I'm not sufficiently immersed in the January 6th materials that have an expert conclusion. Well, one thing we do know, and this this supports what you just said in terms of the speech providing context. So we know that Trump did not did nothing to stop the violence for at least setting three hours, whatever that number is, whatever the number is. He 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 was aware of the violence and did nothing for a sustained period of time, which probably led to some injuries and death and, and, and if not if not death. It certainly led to America being in crisis for a few hours watching on TV the Capitol be attacked. Um, it, I assume this should be a no brainer. I think it's a no brainer, but but not doing what you're required to do to quell an insurrection might be an insurrection, yes? Well, here's what we know. And everybody says this from Blackstone to Francis Lieber. Blackstone was the leading English authority on the common law. Francis Lieber was probably the leading legal commentator in the United States during the Civil War. And that is, once you have an insurrection, anyone who participates, however minutely, knowing that they are advancing the cause of the insurrection, is an insurrectionist and a principle. So if you knew the people in January 6th were an insurrection, you gave one of them a glass of water for their energy, you are as guilty. But that's still an overt act. I mean, that's still a positive act. What about not doing anything? No, no, no. That's where I'm getting to. Yeah. Now, the question is, what if somebody has a duty to do X and fails to do the duty? The short answer is, I'm pretty sure I've covered the 19th century materials comprehensively, and that doesn't come up. So, once again, this is another feature where we have two choices. One, I can interpret Francis Lieber and say Francis Lieber would have said failure to do a duty is in fact an act because Lieber was intelligent, I'm intelligent, and this is what I think. Right. Or I can say, guess what? Francis Lieber, Stephen Field, all the charges in the Civil War, say nothing about this problem. Either way, we're just going to have to decide for ourselves. Right. And 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 for the record, 
Um, silence, we, I talk about sounds a lot when I teach McCulloch versus Maryland. Uh, I'm sorry, right? When I teach the steel seizure case um, and various other things, anytime you have silence, you can always make two arguments. You can always say they didn't say it, so they thought it was okay, or, um, you know, or, or the reverse of that. Um, I, so you're saying we have silence on the issue of can an insurrection be caused by a breach of a legal duty? Yeah, we, we, said, okay. we, we don't. Yeah, okay. History, um, history doesn't help us there. Yeah. Now, it may turn out I've missed something because I wasn't particularly looking at that question. It may turn out, yeah, if there are a few treatises I haven't yet read. But I doubt at this stage what I would find would be a sufficient consensus that I could say, yep, they would have understood this. Whereas with the bottle of water, I've just found 15, 20 leading legal treatises, cases saying, yep, the bottle of water you give, that's treason. That right. I'm confident. Right. I, I guess what I was trying to say earlier was maybe they didn't talk about it because it was so obvious to them that the breach of a legal duty could be, in the right context, could be an insurrection. So there was no reason to talk about it. Or maybe they thought, it, it couldn't be an insurrection, so there's no reason to talk. I'm just saying, we, we don't know. Well, I'm agreeing with you. We don't know what they would have thought. We should do what's best ourselves. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they could imagine a president. Right. Who would behave like that. I mean, and once you say, you, you can say they wouldn't imagine, but once you say they couldn't imagine, you're saying the problem is outside of their conceptual universe. Right. We can only solve it with our means. And by the way, I think that's true for 99% of constitutional law issues, but that's a conversation for a different day. Mark, I want us, we have about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about um, kind of the current politics of all of this. Now, neither you nor I are, are, this is not how we make our living, but I think we do have to think about it a lot, given how we make our living. And I've come to the reluctant conclusion, I might change my mind over the next month, that we should not use Section 3, that this should all go away that Section 3 is a terrible idea in the context of Donald Trump himself. And the main reason I have for that, um, with the assumption I don't really care that much about 1868, I want to do what's best today. And as you've just pointed out, there are a lot of issues we couldn't find the answers to anyway in 1868. Um, I think the biggest crisis facing America is Trumpism, not Trump. I think he's a big, I think he's an existential threat, but I think Trumpism is even a bigger threat. And by Trumpism, I mean his base. And if he doesn't radicalize his base, somebody else will and can. And I'm afraid that if they don't get to vote for him, there will be violence. There will be a complete disruption of the political process. Taking him off the ballot and saying to roughly a third of America, you don't get to vote for your guy is a very dangerous thing to me. You want to tell me why I'm wrong? Well, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> you're wrong. Um, the one thing I think you're wrong about is when you said it's a terrible idea. Yeah. It may or may not be the best idea. I think there are just so many imponderables. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when people who tell me everybody ought to be allowed to vote for the candidate of their choice in 2024... I respond, and they ought to be allowed to vote for the candidate of their choice in 2026 and 2028, but the election of Donald Trump 
may weaken that possibility. So in some sense, we have to ask ourselves, well, what will we do that will maximize the capacity of people to vote for the candidate of their choice? And I wish I knew. Yeah. Um, yeah the way you put but, oh, sorry, but the, the way you put that, which was, which was excellent, went through my mind. If they disqualify Trump, they'll find somebody worse. <laughs> I mean, who poses the same threat to 2026 and 2028? Here, here's what we don't know. And there is some evidence you are two-thirds, three-quarters, four-fifths right, but not 100% right. And the reason is, if we look at people like Chavez in Venezuela yeah. and other charismatic populist leaders, when they go from the scene, you're right. Somebody steps in their footsteps, Bolsonaro in Italy. But it turns out for various reasons that someone doesn't have the capacity to rally the full base. So, with respect to Trump, we know two things, but we do not know their balance. We know that Trump speaks to people who have grievances beyond Trump, some of which are racist, some of which are legitimate. We also need to acknowledge, we can't simply say, as some people, they're all racist and deplorables. We can't simply say they have legitimate grievances. Both are going on. We also know that Trump, the personality, rallies people. So what we do not know is when Trump is removed from the scene, is it the case that someone, and clearly it's not DeSantis, given the personality, can rally the same Trump troops only more effectively? I think right. the wonderful line of Benjamin Witt is that Trump was malevolence tempered by incompetence. <laughs> Might you have, you know, just simply malevolence? We do not know, however, what percent of the support for Trump is really personal. There will be some drop-off. We don't know. Of course, the drop-off could be compensated by people the never-Trumpers who say, well, the new person is much better. We simply do not know. So where yeah. I come out on your issues is I think you might be right with the two provisos, one that I think it might be equally dangerous not to do mm -hmm. what we can do. And the proviso is when unsure... I do think there's a case for disqualifying Trump under Section 3. I do believe the framers were right, not because they were framers, but because they were right that people who violate their oath of office, who office holders who use violence to change the law, ought not be office holders of a constitutional democracy. So that moves the needle to me here. But if you're asking me, 
if Eric Siegel would not say it was a terrible idea, the needle is here, but say, you know, the needle looks more here to me than here. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I think that's right. And as you were saying that, I would. So this is why I was saying it's a, very, it's a tentative view on my part. I'm still formulating it. As you were saying that, what was going through my brain was, you know what? I don't really know what the best way to get rid of Trump and Trumpism is. Maybe just do the right thing. The right thing is to disqualify this guy. Don't get me wrong. I want the audience to understand. I think the right thing is to disqualify this guy. I think he should be disqualified. I don't think he should hold an office ever again. But I'm also, at, in my bones, a pragmatist. Uh, this is my podcast, so I have to mention Posner once a podcast. Um, I, was a, I was a pragmatist before I met him, but I became a, a nuclear pragmatist after our long relationship. Um, and, and my last question to you is about pragmatism. Even if it turns out, that this is the best way to get rid of Trump and Trumpism. Even if that's true, that I'm wrong, and that Section 3 is the way we should go, I'm still concerned about giving the Republican Party that precedent. I'm still concerned about... So let's be clear. One person has been disqualified under this statute, I believe, since I'm under, this, under Section 3, since 1869, I think. One person. In New Mexico, two people. Okay, thank you. Two people... Victor Burger in 1920. Okay, two people in 100 and how many years? Um, this is not a part of the Constitution, you know, that, that's been well litigated or we know very often. I am very nervous what a Ron DeSantis might lead his people to do uh, in the wake of a, of a Section 3 disqualification of Trump. Are you not worried about that? I'm worried about that, but it, it to me, feeds into a broader worry. You impeach Trump for legitimate reasons and you find a sham impeachment of Biden. Right. I find the indictments of Trump to be legitimate. A couple are a little more borderline than others, but they strike me as legitimate. And one wouldn't be surprised to see sham indictments of other figures. One of the really virtues of Section 3 is what Republicans said is, you know, we hate Democrats. But most of you Democrats... You're advocating racism, and the way you're going to implement racism is by winning elections, and our job is to beat you. If, as a society, we can't tell the difference between Donald Trump and a whole lot of characters in the Republican Party we very strongly disagree with, as a society, we can't do this. We're in a lot of trouble and nothing that happens under Section 3 will change that. No, so I think that, that's my bottom line thinking. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. And I think we are, I think, in fact, we are in a lot of trouble. And the only way out, um, I don't know if I see the door out yet. Yeah. Here, here's where we agree. And that is Section 3 is not the solution. Right. In the sense of you may think it's good as I do, you may not as you do, but there is a broader struggle for a rational, pragmatic, decent politics that needs to be fought. And anyone who thinks if Donald Trump is disqualified, they can take this election season off, that will be a disaster. Yeah, I, that, that's, that, that is for sure. Um, I, I would also say I think that 
um, you know, the Supreme Court is eventually going to have to rule on this. That now that seems pretty inevitable, given all the lawsuits. Um, and and I don't really trust that institution to do what's in the best interest of America either. That's another concern, uh, maybe less of a concern. But I, I, I am worried about what they might do with Section 3. Um, what I do know is they'll do whatever is best for the Republican Party. So we have to hope. That's what the court does. The, the Roberts Court in political well, cases. Yeah, can, can I, can I yeah. toss something at you, Amy? It's off of what you said. I think it's interesting. And that is, I think a Trump disqualification will at least initially mobilize some Trump supporters. I'm, I'm worried about that. Whereas a Supreme Court decision against Trump disqualification may actually mobilize people on the other side, you know, not to the abortion degree, but in many ways. The Section 3 has two audiences. One are courts. The other is getting the evidence out there in public against Trump. And this is a vehicle for doing so that in many ways, getting that evidence out, peeling away one by one Trump voters in very much the Kelly interview. Yeah. Where, you know, yeah. Getting all this stuff out there may be useful regardless of the legal outcome that one of there's a very famous book in political science jerry rosenberg hollow uh, hope, hope. We, it's one of my it's one of my favorite books mark <laughs> yeah it's where he points out that supreme court decisions do not have strong effects and may even have negative effects but there's a counter to that michael mccann of university of washington among others has pointed out the mobilization the campaigns of which Supreme Court decisions are a part, mobilize people that even when you lose, your political side may be stronger. Right. Um, all right, since you mentioned Gerald Rosenberg, I simply have to mention this. Uh, so Gerald wrote a book called The Hollow Hope, which is most famous for its data that shows the South was basically still completely segregated nine years after Brown. Um, and that's how I think that book got his claim to fame. Um, Mark, um, few years ago, I was asked to go to the University of Chicago in 2016 to present my radical thesis that we should have, that was when Justice Scalia passed away and we had eight justices and the American Constitution Society, of which I'm a board member, said we need nine. And I said eight is great. And they disowned me. And I made a case that we should have an evenly divided Supreme Court for the rest of time. And the Senate can do that on their own. It's, they don't need a constitutional amendment. There's nothing the president can do about it. Garland already proved that. The audience was Judge Posner, Judge Easterbrook, a bunch of famous people, and Gerald Rosenberg. Of the 30 people in the room, the only one who said my proposal was a good one was Gerald Rosenberg, <laughs> which I thought was, which, I, which, I, which was very flattering to me because he's been a hero of mine for a long time. But I think his, his cynicism about the court was the reason why he agreed with me about that. So I'm glad you brought up Gerald Rosenberg. It's, it's interesting. And that is, uh, I'm not a Rosenberger. I disagree with you on some things. Yeah. But I can't get angry <laughs> at the court will have eight members. It's okay. So it means you need 5-3 rather than 5-4. Yes. yes. That just, to me, is to the right of my decimal point. 
What do you mean? And, okay, but that I mean is, I think there are decent arguments that in order to be 5-3 and not 5-4, I don't think it's extraordinarily important whether it's majority 5-4 or a slightly bigger majority 5-3. No, Mark, my point was it has to be four Republicans and four Democrats on the court at all times. Okay, yeah, okay, that, that's a different That's a different point. No, that's my argument. That's my argument. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, hold on. Because hold. I used to be a Republican. Yeah, I, no, hold on. Um, I have a, in that proposal I made, I mean, a whole statutory proposal, um, I, there's a way to get independence in if there's ever going to be an independent again, which there probably isn't. Um, yeah. No, Easterbrook sat in the front row and said the same thing five times. Justice Blackman, Justice Souter, Justice White, what are you talking about? People flip. You know, not all Republicans are conservative, not all Democrats are liberal. And I, and I kept saying to him, no, there's a way to get around that, which is just simply have two thirds of the Senate, of the majority party in the Senate Judiciary Committee approve the person. And you won't get stealth. You won't get very conservative Democrats and you won't get very liberal Republicans. What you will get, though, are nine moderates eventually. Eventually, you will get nine moderates out of my proposal. And that's what I think is the best idea. We don't have to go into that. I'm just saying. Yeah. OK. G Gerald was sympathetic to that. And I was just pointing out he's one of the few people in America who were sympathetic <laughs> to that to that to that thesis. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I think we've done. I think you have done a really good job of setting forth the issues on Section three. And I love your take on history and originalism. And I love your work. And everybody should read whatever it is you write. And I look forward to seeing you in Minnesota in a couple of weeks. where We will further talk about Section three. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Take care.